Hello and welcome to Contemplations. I am joined again by Bodade, also known as History Bro, and we are doing part two of Manners and Etiquette. Um, we weren't necessarily planning to do a part two of this part, we were going to go straight on to Victorian values, so sorry if you were expecting that, but we're going to be doing that one next time and we're going to talk about this in more detail because we did run out of time and uh, we're also going to touch on some some wholesome stuff as well as some stuff that's kind of a little bit um, of its time, as in the, the fashion particularly, but the caring for one's family and the etiquette in the home I think is really, really wholesome and I, re I really liked it and I wanted to, I think it's worth looking at just for that, but we're also going to go through and look at some quotes from prominent Victorians as well and look at what they, they had to say just more generally summing up about how to conduct oneself and what's important uh, to, to develop character and to be a good person and hopefully this will be a good summary to the, the two parts and if we have the time we're going to talk about how to apply sort of Victorian manners and etiquette to the modern day but if not might talk about that briefly in uh, the Victorian values one just to kind of finish up where we are but um, it's good to be back and talking about this because it was it's quite enjoyable last time, wasn't it? Just all of this sort of idiosyncrasies and how different households did different things. And there's probably going to be more of that today. Yeah, I really enjoyed it last time. Uh, and I was glad to see the comments. Other people seemed to as well. Mm. I really like the, the feedback of, you know, we did do that in our house. I was raised that way. Or other people say, no, we weren't raised that way. I, was, I just find it really interesting. It's, it's always... Um, I don't know what it is, that there's some sort of innate fascination with how certain households are run. Not necessarily certain ones, but just more generally, like households that aren't your own, there might be weird things that they do. Like, I didn't realise that people put um, tomato sauce in, in the cupboards or ketchup. I just presumed it was always in the fridge. I thought, oh, oh you've got to refrigerate it. But then I found out that that was weird, that I was in the minority. I'm just like, oh. We kept ketchup in the cupboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, people do it, people do it differently. I'd be scolded for, for doing that, even though it doesn't go bad. There's no <laughs> reason for it, so I was just arbitrarily punished for, for something that didn't matter. I always thought it was quite interesting that how shocked I was as a child. As an adult, you just you, you get used to it, don't you, that people mm -hmm. live differently. But when I was a child or a teenager or something, you go around other people's homes and they're doing something a bit different. And like how shocked you were by it. Like for example, just one little example. I was raised in a household where you don't put things on the windowsill, like trinkets, like mm -hmm. you know, like small figurines or bric-a-brac um, <laughs> on the windowsill. You don't do that. Windowsill should be left plain. And then you go around someone that's else's the same, house. Yeah. Go around someone else's house, and they've, they're like windowsill in their living room is filled with bric-a-brac, um, and you, you know, like sometimes like little cut crystal figurines or whatever they've got. Mm -hmm. And I was raised, I was told that that was sort of, um, not rude, but it's just sort of low class or something. I came from a firmly working class background, so <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But anyway, you go around someone else's house and you'd sort of, you were raised to sort of judge them a little bit for that. And it's not till you get to adulthood or not till I got to sort of late teens really, but adulthood where you realise, well, that was just some nonsense that was instilled into <laughs> me in my household. Mm. It was really a fault in my household rather than anyone else. You must have had that when you're growing up. You realise that something your parents told you at some point, you're like, well, actually, that was, that was nonsense. Why have I... You must have had that a number of times. I'm like, Why did my mum and dad it. tell me that and raise me that way? 
Normally, silly. normally they'd raise me to have values, which they would then be like, oh yeah, they're not that important. Don't worry about that. <laughs> so they would uh, kind of, I ended up being more pedantic than they are about lots of stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> I've kind of gone the other way where they're just like, what, what are you doing, Josh? Why, why do you care about that, you weirdo? Mm, mm. I think we mentioned it once on the Christmas, one of the Christmas contemplations. Mm. You know, I was raised that you have a real tree. And any household that has a fake plastic Christmas tree, that's like, that's gross, really. I mean, when it's a, not, it's yeah. fine. Like, do that if you want to do that. It's fine. You shouldn't be judged for that. But I was sort of told that was like, pretty wrong to have a fake tree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is funny, isn't it? Well, yeah, I've only ever had one real tree. We've oh, always right. had a fake one, so I suppose that's an example. But <laughs> yeah. then we also had pets, and we discovered when we had the real tree that it encourages the pets to urinate on the, the Christmas presents. So <laughs> don't do that, because they'll, they'll, smell, they'll smell a tree. They'll think, oh, it's okay to go to the toilet under here. <laughs> and so, yeah, be warned. If you have a real tree with cats and dogs, they might urinate under Well, if it. you have a fake tree and it's white, mm -hmm. you're basically a barbarian. You're basically an animal if if that's what you have in your household. <laughs> At one point, and I, it's not I, fair and I put my foot down on this one. My my parents bought a black Christmas tree with like silver decorations, and it's meant to match the interior of the the room. But I was just like, it looks like it's a burnt tree. <laughs> yeah, you've put up a burnt tree, and eventually they went back to the green one. Thank goodness, <laughs> it returned to sanity. But, I mean, there, there are things that you disagree with even being a member of, of the household sometimes, aren't there? So it's, it's not necessarily something you kind of, it's not the hill you die on. Right, yeah. But anyway, um, moving on to etiquette in the home and in family life, I thought that this was pr perhaps the most wholesome part of all of um, Cecil Hartley's uh, book and just if you didn't catch the first part I would be a bit surprised that you've got to this point in the second part but uh, this is uh, The Gentleman's Book of Etiquette and Manual of Politeness by Cecil B. Hartley from 1860 and although he's American he seems to understand um, the European rules of, of manners and etiquette and there seems to be at least a lot of overlap between the States and uh, Europe but I would say in the current day and age there's quite a difference between the two. And I, I don't think this is necessarily in, in the family per se, but just more generally. Yeah, I think back in the 19th century, there's sort of this transatlantic thing, mid-Atlantic thing mm. where um, more well-to-do American people, uh, people that subscribe to the New Yorker, is the cliche, isn't it, in America? Um, they're, they're very sort of um, similar. They're, they're sort of, um, their attitudes and values are very similar to... Mm. to British middle-class people or something. But then, having said that, as the decades and century r rolls by, yeah, things change. And also, a British sensibility is quite different to a French one, which is quite different to a yeah. Spanish or Italian one. I think there's now more similarity between European countries than there is between uh, Britain and America now. Maybe, maybe. It's difficult to tell, really, because yeah, there are so yeah. many different dimensions to it. I mean, I'm yeah. sure there are plenty of Americans that have been raised in the sort of British way where there might be commonalities there. It depends, I suppose, in the States who your ancestors were, because you could be coming from anywhere. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Within I mean, reason. If you're raised in sort of a well-to-do family from Connecticut or, or somewhere, 
uh, he'll probably have a very, very different experience to sort of uh, rural Arkansas. And again, a very, very different difference, a very different experience to sort of Brooklyn, like inner city New York or something. My kind of very ignorant theory is sort of the Midwest of America, the sort of middle America are probably the politest, maybe in the South as well. Um, And the coasts are the rudest parts. I think it's the same whether you're in Britain or America. There's just a difference between rural and urban. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Um, it's just sort of more mainly that I would have thought. But there are friendly cities in in Britain, aren't there? You go up up north, some parts of the southwest. I know um, some places in Devon and Cornwall. People are very friendly. Um, you know, you'll have people just striking up conversation at bus stops and stuff like that, which you certainly wouldn't get in a place like London. Right. Like there's a, a massive gulf between that where. London, you keep your head down, you keep to yourself. I remember being a teenager, being sort of scruffy-haired, sort of uh, unshaven beard in a hoodie, looking like a a miscreant. And an old lady would come up to me and say, like, oh, what are you up to today, young man? Are you going into town? It's like, yes, yes, I'm going to see my friends. She's like, oh, well, that's lovely. You you go and have a nice time. Like it, It just wasn't a barrier in the same way because everyone kind of knew that everyone would be local as a, a small community in a sense, even though it was in a close to a major city. But still, you still get sort of those those small things, don't you? Hmm. So hmm. It, it very much varies. And I think that that wouldn't have been as much of the case in the Victorian era in that I think there would have been some sort of universality to manners because you have, you have books like these that came out that would say these are the rules um, that's pretty much it. So I think that there's more agreement in the past than there perhaps would be today. And I think that lots of people have their own individual way of conducting themselves with manners and, and etiquette, but it's not necessarily um, as uh, society-wide as it used to be. I think that's probably correct. I definitely think there, there's a, there would be a difference between rural areas and urban areas, even back then. I think, but, yeah. Especially with big cities. But I think that's sort of the way it has to be, or, or, or the way it's sort of just well, more likely to be. real world and practical because, reasons for right, that, right? Yeah. But sorry. Well, I grew up in London, or great, greater London anyway, um, and you pass people in the street and you don't say good morning to them because you would just be endlessly doing it. Yeah, it, it makes weird. perfect sense right, why it's not right. done. So, I'm, I'm not lamenting that people don't do it because you'd never get to work on time, would you, if right. you're saying hello to everyone in the street? But even on um, a Sunday, very early in the morning, when you might only pass a small number of people, you could say good morning to everyone. You still don't. Um, or like striking up a conversation at a bus stop in London. Again, you just don't do it. I remember when I was a child or at some point, um, going on sort of a, a trip or a holiday in England, somewhere to sort of rural somewhere in Gloucestershire or something, and people just saying good morning to you as they pass you in the street and thinking, it's weird. I'd never experienced it before. Like, <laughs> that's weird. Like, why they don't know me. Why are they saying anything to me? Like, not that it's bad, but just finding it weird because I'd never experienced it before. Um, so, yeah, I think even in the Victorian period, a big metropolis like London, etiquette would have, would be different. I think it would have to be by necessity, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I think that also where you're raised does shape how you conduct yourself, even outside of the environment that you were raised in. So um, I went to to the Welsh countryside and I intuitively just said hello to people as I walked past and I noticed that other people were doing it as well. So it's like a universal 
of rural areas and I didn't really interrogate like why am I doing this I don't know any of these people I don't live here this is like one of the, the few times I've been to Wales in the first place but then I realized oh right that's just what I've been kind of inculcated to do if you're in the countryside you walk past someone you kind of say hello but I think there's a, a good reason for that as well in that you don't want to be in the countryside with some psycho you want to make right. sure that it's like a sounding board are you a sane person yeah. And I mean, nine times out of 10, because most insane people live in cities and don't have the means to get out to the countryside, you're fine. It's not a crazy person. And even if they are like a person that's a bit of a nearly well, they'll probably still say hello to you. So it's not a perfect system. <laughs> nearly well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Uh, so, like in a, in a city, in London, for example, so I'm just queuing a, a bank, mm. if someone strikes up a conversation, even though it's perfectly okay, I would feel like I wouldn't strike up a conversation with someone else in a. Mm. And if they did with me, I'd probably humour them. I almost certainly would humour them, especially if it's an old person who's obviously just very, very lonely. But uh, it, I would also feel it's a bit weird. Like you don't need to do that. Whereas passing someone in a country lane, mm. in in the west country somewhere in a rural area, and they just say morning, something like that. Of course, I'm going to. Say the same back. And you respond. can also say it with with the accent as well, which is always fun. You go morning. I have done exactly that. In fact, as they've passed, I've initiated the good morning with a very strong accent, just for comedy. They don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, just to my yeah, just there's no need to do that. It's just weird idiosyncrasy that I've done. I, anyway. I enjoy doing it because it's <laughs> it reminds me of farmers, and it, it, that reminds me of home a bit when they go morning and they kind of nod the head. And then that's that. Your conversation is done. Yeah. The, the morning and head nod, and then you move on. I, I noticed that I've not mentioned family at all. We've got oh, waylaid right. by. Okay, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> we got waylaid. Uh, I did enjoy that. The. Uh, I mean, even. Um, I'm going to finish what I'm, I was going to say anyway, despite it being a tangent. But I went on a bike ride last summer through um, the Devonshire countryside. And even on a cycle track, people would do that when you're like shooting past each other. I just thought it was funny. So you get like a drive-by morning. <laughs> but um, where was I? I need to go pictures to... That, I think I've even seen that happen. Was it, sorry? I think I've even seen that happen. It's two <laughs> oh, people really? on bikes crossing each other. And just as they <laughs> whiz past, give each other a good morning. So this is what Hartley has to say about the family. And I think this is... This is quite lovely, actually, and uh, a very uplifting thing for once. So, there are many men in this world who would be horror-struck if accused of the least breach of etiquette towards their friends and their acquaintances abroad, and yet he will, at home, utterly disregard the simplest rules of politeness if such rules interfere in the least with his own selfish gratification. They disregard the pure and holy ties which should make courtesy at home a pleasure as well as a duty. They forget that home has a sweet poetry of its own, created out of the simplest materials, yet haunting more or less the secret recesses of every human heart. It is divided into a thousand separate poems, which should be full of individual interest, little quiet touches of feeling and golden recollections, which in the, the heart of a truly noble man are interwoven with his very being. Common things are, to him, hallowed and made beautiful by the spell of memory and association, owing all their glory to the halo of his own uh, pure, fond affection. I thought that was really nice. Hmm. 
it's it's mm. lovely, um, well written prose. I can certainly say that. Very poetic. I kind of just as a, a bit of a tangent. I lament this way of writing. I, mm. I think it's it's really quite nice, and I think. Mm. I also kind of learned to write a bit like this originally in that I read lots of old um, literature growing up. So it made me speak in somewhat old um, timey ways, mm. made me say things like near do well, um, <laughs> very outdated phrases. But I think it, there's a certain charm to it. And certainly in what they're saying here that, that they're basically saying that you can turn your home into the the most beautiful extension of yourself and there'll be a sort of bi-directional relationship there in that the more you put into beautifying your home, making it a nice place to be both for yourself and your family, the more um, you get out of it as well, which is quite a nice notion. And I don't think people necessarily think about their home in the same way anymore. Sure, they'll, they'll do it up and make it look nice, but it's not to the same extent as that where it, it is truly an expression of, of who you are, it, as, as what they're trying to say here. Is he talking about not just the sort of the decor, but actually like the atmosphere and everything? Exactly. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I agree with what you said about the writing style as well. Anyone that's read any of my articles will notice that my style is very verbose, very florid, overly so. <laughs> but that's how, what I want to do. That's how I like it. Mm. Anyway, yeah, I completely agree. Um, to make prose really really sterile and academic at all times I just don't agree that that's necessary I had to move away from that leaving university because I went into mm. it with that's what quite, they force you to do when mm, you're writing an essay especially as a scientist I mean you I did get um, lecturers occasionally when they were marking my work they would say oh I really like this turn of phrase not very academic but it's, mm. it's quite nice and I think even academics kind of are just like, oh, that's quite refreshing. That's mm. quite nice. So I, I, I've, I stuck with it more so than most. I didn't, I, I saw the value in having quite a, a wide vocabulary, and I understood that there are lots of different writing styles. Like I knew that if I were writing a, a letter to a relative or something, which I don't do nearly as as much as I should, um, I would use very different language than if I was writing a neuroscientific research paper which is entirely obvious, and you'd be like, well, of course. But then you, when you write, it's very much dependent on repetition and habit, isn't it? Mm. So it, it tends to be that the phrases that you use writing most of the time tend to crop up again and again. And so you tend to write formally, even if you don't intend to. Mm. I, I do this sometimes where I write a really formal message to like my parents. Mm. Like when they're asking me how I am, I'm just like, wow, that's... That's a bit much, isn't it, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just like, oh yeah, I've been I've been writing formal stuff. I've been like planning a contemplations all day or something like that, where you write differently than you would otherwise. Yeah, um, definitely there's different tones or voices you can use. Yeah, I remember at A level doing my first essays or something, and um just have it, I might have used a simile or something, and just have it crossed out saying, Don't do that. You shouldn't do that, don't do that. And undergrad being told not to use the first person, not to say I, or anything like that. Just make it more and more formal, more and more sterile. Um, that even some alliteration. I say, I remember being picked up at undergrad saying, have you deliberately done that? Some alliteration. And me saying yes. And they're like, well, don't. Change that. Reword that. I look back on it. I think, like, like why? I shouldn't need to have done that. Uh, but anyway, um, so when I'm given free hand to write however I want to write, it's going to be 
almost a Victorian level of, um, well, over the top, really. Over the top. But that's what I like. That's how I want to do it. You know, that's, it's a I conscious it's choice. Um, it's a conscious choice, yeah. You know, I like Dickens. Not that my writing is anything like Dickens. But, you know, I like um, sort of quite verbose writing or very expressive, emotive writing. I like that. I think it's a breath, um, breath of fresh air in the modern day where everyone's aspiring to be objective and using quite bureaucratic or scientific language to to kind of explain themselves. Yeah. Because he, with this sort of floral language, flowery language, it's it's very clear what the person means. It's not tied up in these words that you've got to look, use a dictionary to translate it. Although, I've, I've, you know, I, I don't necessarily have to do that. My business is in language in a, in a sense, but... At the same time, it's still not enjoyable to read, even if you understand what all the terms mean. Hmm. There's a certain poetry to, to writing. Um, the second point there, the first thing was just about the writing style. The second point, the main thing that he was talking about is the ha the household and yeah. sort of the atmosphere in the household. And I, of course, absolutely agree with that. I think one of the worst things, like really one of the worst things, is when there's a really, really tense atmosphere in a household. I've been to those before. Yeah. Quite often they're, they're quite um, well put together. Like they kind of look a bit like a show home, but also in, in terms of a show home, they don't feel very lived in. I don't know whether that's your experience, but that's kind of how I'd characterise it in that you go to the house and it all looks nice, but it looks like it's, it's put on display. Like you know mm. how mm -hmm. um, people put mannequins in a window it's that sort of thing of, you know, that it's here to convey a message rather than to be practical and lived in. I was thinking even less about just what it physically looks like, more sort of the, the atmosphere, because I feel like that's what he was talking about there, sort of cherished moments between family members and things. I was blessed by being in a very loving, sort of sweet household, really. Absolutely blessed with that feel very, very sorry for people that were brought up in a, in a violent household. Anyway, just as a quick anecdote, there was this one kid I was friends with in primary school, the later, later years of primary school, and everyone sort of knew that his dad was a bit of a nutter. It's not like he turned up to school with bruises often, but everyone knew his dad was a sort of a bit of a crazy dad. Right? And this one time I was round his house, like playing after school or on a weekend or something, and his dad came in and the atmosphere just suddenly, it was, it was one of the most extreme things I've experienced in this sense. The whole atmosphere, everyone, the mum, my friend and his siblings, all suddenly sort of went deadly quiet and just look, looked at the ground and stuff. And his dad was somehow radiating like a, aggression or something. He didn't do anything or say anything particularly aggressive, but it was one of those male figures that... I know exactly what you mean, yeah. Like somehow just exuded, like barely suppressed violence on some level. And uh, and, and the atmosphere, suddenly you could cut the, the air with a knife. It was that tense. And everyone was like 100% walking on eggshells egg around him. And even me as like the, one of the little kids, little friends who was round, um, he was like, just had some sort of like steely glare at me. I didn't, I didn't feel it for any moment he was going to attack me or anything like that. But, you know, it was, it was on that sort of trajectory. Mm. And anyway, the household, certainly when he was there, 
must have been horrible. Imagine being raised day in, day out with that. You just terrible, couldn't, terrible. You couldn't relax, could you? Right, yeah. I feel no. so sorry for people that have to grow up with that. I have come into contact with with households like that, and it's just kind of <sighs> just a bit sad, really. Yeah, it's really like, sad. There's an atmosphere of what's the word? Just, just like um, everyone's always on their their toes. That you can't can't really let your well, guard down, well, which fear. is what fear. That's what it was. There was an atmosphere of fear. Probably the word I was looking for. And I didn't grow up with that at all. The opposite. Mm. It was sort of an atmosphere of warmth or joy most of the time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just, just terrible. And what he said there is sort of what I'm saying. It's like the opposite of having a fearful atmosphere, right? Mm. If it's up to you, if it's your household, if you're the man of the house, you're a man's man and you control really everything, the tone, the atmosphere. Yeah, don't make it one of... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Barely suppressed fear, I think. Yeah, be be welcoming. Allow people to be on, you know, be relaxed, not on their guard. That would be a good start. I think that's be a very nice, fundamental. Kind, generous human being, if you can. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Don't be cold and uncaring. And I mean, I think a good way of looking at it is: um, imagine your funeral. Is anyone going to be crying? That tends to work on some people. Just like. Do you think the people that you live with are really going to be sad to see you gone if you're being horrible? Mm. But I, I'm sure the people who watch Contemplations are, mm. are not horrible people. <laughs> I'm sure they already know. We're preaching to the choir. Right, yeah. But um, to carry on reading from Hartley, it says, The man who shows his contempt for these holy ties and associations by pulling off his mask of courtesy as soon as his foot fa- passes his own threshold is not really a gentleman, but a selfish tyrant whose true qualities are not courtesy and politeness, but hypocritical affectation of them, assumed to obtain a footing in society. Avoid such men. Even though you are one of the favoured ones abroad who received their gentle courtesy, you may rest assured that the heartless egotism which makes them rude and selfish at home will make their friendship but a name if circumstance ever put it to the test. Above all, avoid their example. So, in the strongest terms, he condemns the kind of uh, male patriarch that we are describing. And it says, In what does the home circle consist? First, there are the parents who watch over your infancy and childhood, whom you are commanded by the highest power to honour. I find that um, notion interesting, because we wouldn't put it in terms of you honour your parents today, but I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Then the brother and the sister, the wife who has left her own home and all its tender ties for your sake, and the children who look to you uh, for example, guidance and instruction. Who else on the broad earth can lay the same claim to your gentleness and courtesy than they can? If you are rude at home, then is your politeness abroad a mere cloak to conceal a bad, selfish heart? And um, it carries on to say, here, the parents who have anxiously watched over your education have the first right to the fruits of it, and all the gentlemen should be um, exerted to repay them for the care they have taken of you since your birth. All the rules of politeness, of generosity, of good nature, patience, and respectful affection should be exerted for your parents. You owe them a pure, filial love, void of personal interest, which should prompt you to study all of their tastes, their likes, their aversions, in order to indulge the one and avoid the other. You owe to them polite attention, deference to all their wishes and compliance with their requests. Every joy will be doubled to them if you show a frank pleasure 
in its course and no comfort can soothe the grief of a parent so much as the sympathizing love of a dutiful son. If they are old, dependent upon you for support, then uh, you can better um, prove to them that the tender care they lavished upon you when you depended upon their love for everything was not lost, but was a good seed sown upon fruitful ground, which is, I think, a very wholesome notion. And I wholeheartedly agree with what Hartley is saying here. Mm. It's interesting you talked about having a selfish heart and being a tyrant. Mm. Don't do that. I think that's what I was trying to get at. That's exactly that's what, what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, yeah, again, I was raised somehow. My parents um, uh, were able to straddle that line between making you completely obedient to them, um, but without being tyrannical. Mm. Um, so that you, we did always endlessly love them, would do anything for them, would always, nearly always, sort of strictly obey them without being forced to, without a hint of, of coercion. I think that's a, a quite a, a line to straddle. It's quite a balancing act because, you know, you want to be kind and generous as a parent or as a father, um, but you don't want them, you don't want your children to lose respect for you and then take the mickey out of you. Mm. So you've got, there's a line, there's a, there's a fine line to walk there. Um, but yeah, certainly, I mean, that, again, it's the way I was raised is that you wouldn't really dream, certainly as a small child, um, wouldn't really dream of not doing as you're told. <laughs> Again, I find that strange at school, even at primary school, sometimes you get some crazy kid that just would not do as they're told. <laughs> just wouldn't care if a, a teacher or an adult um, sh was shouting at them, instructing, like ordering them to do things. They, wouldn't, they just wouldn't do it and wouldn't care. Um, the way I was raised is that was just sort of unthinkable. Um, we need some more people like that in politics. That'd be nice. But I, I agree with you in that I my household was was more on the probably authoritarian side, which created a bit of resentment from me as a child. But then as I grew up, I realised that actually this instilled in me lots of good habits that are very useful. And uh, hmm. my parents would say to me, like, you might not like it now, but you'll appreciate it when you're an adult. And they were right. <laughs> they, they said exactly those words and um, I, you can't really understand things from it when you're looking at the world from a child's perspective because you just see the immediacy of oh why can't I walk across that that six foot um, collapsed tree trunk over a raging torrent of a river <laughs> why, why, why not I'm not going to fall off but it's fun <laughs> like, why am I not allowed to do that and obviously they were just like no it, the, the risk is not worth the reward <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that segment from Contemplations, my series. And if you want to watch the full conversation, which that was taken from, all you need to do is sign up to our website for £5 a month and you can watch all of the content we have there. Thank you very much for watching and goodbye.